House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. I'm your host, Al Warren. Co-host is Kev Thompson. Hey, everybody. So today we are going to talk about the uh, Kennedy assassination tapes and probably a few other things as well. We've got uh, uh, just a... a Great journalist and author here, Max Holland. Thanks for joining us today. Glad to be with you. So uh, now, um, Max, so you, the Kennedy assassination tapes. So you actually um, have the tapes. Now that's of Lyndon Johnson and uh, the aftermath of the assassination. Um, how did you obtain them? Um, well, after Oliver Stone's movie, the Congress passed a legislation mandating the gathering and release of all assassination-related documents, and one of the documents was, or were, the tapes that Lyndon Johnson made while he was president. And although these were technically exempt from the legislation because they were under a deed of gift of Johnson to his own library and closed for 75 years. The uh, library director, a fellow named Harry Milton, thought it would be a good idea to open them. So with the permission of Lady Bird Johnson, they exhumed these tapes, which had never been heard, and first they started out with all the assassination-related tapes. So these are tapes made the day of, the days immediately after the assassination, leading up to the Warren Commission's creation. And then there are a lot of assassination-related conversations in December, but gradually it becomes less and less a topic. You know, there's a smattering of conversations in January and March and April. Um <clears throat> And then later, in 1967 and 66, the assassination rears its head again with Jim Garrison and other critics of the Warren Report. <clears throat> Eventually, Harry Middleton persuaded Lady Bird to release all the Johnson tapes, you know, on any subject, and those are heard over C-SPAN, and, you know, a lot of people find them entertaining and informative. But in 2004, I put out a book just about uh, just looking at these assassination-related tapes and trying to put them in context. Because one of the things about these tapes, you know, they're so oriented to events of the day that unless you have enough context, you can <clears throat> literally misunderstand them. Right. Now, now, when you get to these tapes. Um, as I understand it, Lyndon Johnson talks a lot about the assassination, but um, he doesn't talk as if he was behind it or he knew what went on. Wouldn't, wouldn't that in itself kind of eliminate books like Roger Stone's book, Accusing Johnson of Being the Assassin? Yeah, but I'm sure he's a ready answer for that, you know, that the tapes were made on purpose to, you know, confuse and, the historical issue or culpability of Johnson. So uh, the answer to the question is yes, but, you know, Roger Stone, like our president, will say anything. So, Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, Ian, I kind of... So, oh, go ahead. I was... Oh, no. So are, are you 
suggesting that these tapes are kind of an obfuscation? No, I'm saying they're not. I'm saying Roger Stone will say they are. Yeah. Yeah, because Roger Stone um, basically in his book accused Johnson of being behind the whole assassination. Right. So, um, yeah, it's hard. It's, but, um, but, uh, but if you listen to them, you know, he's desperate for information. He's concerned about whether he's a target, too. He doesn't know if this is an attempt to decapitate the U.S. government, whether by Cuba or the Soviet Union. Um, you know, to any reasonable person, it's clear that they exculpate Johnson. Yeah, exactly. Now, what's your assessment on the Warren uh, Commission, the Warren Report? Well, it's a, it's a long uh, answer. Uh, yeah. Well, just a, just a general overview, as in, like, because what I say is there's, there's two camps. One is obviously saying it's whitewashed, it's fake, it's, it's, it's not, it wasn't done correctly, and they're suspect of everybody that was on the, the actual commission, and others mm -hmm. are the other side saying, well, right. you know. So, well, I, I'm kind of in the middle. I mean, I, I started out uh, sort of agnostic. I didn't know what to make of the commission. I was concerned. This is before I researched it. I was concerned they didn't know this, they didn't do that. Uh, you know, the FBI withheld information from them. Robert Kennedy withheld information from them. The CIA withheld information from them. How good they could have they a job could they have done if they were denied all this information? Uh, and then, as I got into the case, uh, I'd say I became known and admitted staunch defender of the integrity of the commission. I certainly, I mean, I've interviewed almost all the staff members. I interviewed Gerald Ford before he died. He was the last remaining commissioner. So I'm a staunch defender of its basic integrity, but it is also true that the commission made mistakes that put its own work in disrepute. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll admit to that. Um, and the biggest one, to my way of thinking, is that they accepted the widespread perception that the Zapruder film was a recording of the entire assassination. And because they did that, they uh, uh, made some big mistakes that uh, injured their reputation. Yeah. Uh, one, one key part to that is the Alan Dulles. It seems to have... Uh, him being on the commission, they were saying was uh, you know a person that Kennedy was um, firing, and they didn't get along, and shouldn't have been on the council or the commission itself. Mm -hmm. Well, if you listen to the conversation between Johnson and Dulles, uh, at that time it was known that Oswald had gone to Mexico and had gone to the Cuban and Soviet uh, embassies. It was considered an intelligence issue of the highest order that suggested that perhaps since it had happened just weeks before the assassination that there was some connection between the communists and the assassination so that Johnson wanted you know one of America's most esteemed intelligence experts on the commission Dulles doesn't want to go on it because 
he's afraid of the propaganda windfall that will come from the Soviet Union if he's on the commission, because he knows that they're going to accuse him of being part of an intelligence whitewash. So he says, are you sure you want me to do this, Mr. President? You know, have you thought through all the implications? And, and Johnson says, you know, isn't going to take no for an answer, and he puts Dulles on, so... Yeah. But that's... Uh, but, I mean, no, nobody can blame him. I mean, that's a rather admirable attitude to take, especially given today's society. Uh, attitude on whose part, Dulles's or? Yes, you know, are you are you sure you want me to do this? You know, he's thinking ahead. Right, right, he is, because he knows that it's made for order propaganda that the head of the CIA is on this. That just is going to give Soviet propaganda a real, uh, you know, a real line or or a theme to mine, which is that. Dulles is engaged in intelligence cover-up. Uh, and, of course, some people do believe that he did, but uh, the only thing he helped cover up, from my point of view, was that we had been trying to kill Castro. I mean, uh, that's what he helped cover up. But then Robert Kennedy was covering that up, too. But, yeah, but, but eventually that was going to become a big issue. Well, nobody knew you know, that at the time. Giving, you know, the, knew that at the time. Given the, the, the Bay of Pigs and everything else that was going to uh, eventually, you know, hit the news. Well, eventually is, you know, pretty vague. You know, eventually when? 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? I mean, as far as Dulles was concerned, you know, it might be a secret for 50 years. Uh Certainly, they didn't foresee what was going to happen. I mean, it really came out because of Watergate. I mean, that's led to the church hearings and the uh, Senate and the House hearings, and that's when it was really confirmed. Now, there were newspaper reports of it before that. that that's to be sure. But, you know, it's different having a newspaper story or a columnist alleging it and having the U.S. government and CIA witnesses testified to it. So uh, they were operating on the fact that it needed to be kept secret, and they certainly weren't going to step forward and, and be the first to break that secret. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you, you actually talk about the uh, uh, Deep Throat, and you have an article about the myth of Deep Throat. Um, right. About Mark Felt. Um, right, that's another book I wrote, a separate book, yeah. uh, but related, related because <clears throat> during the doing the book on the Kennedy assassination, I learned a lot about how the FBI operated, especially under Hoover and uh, you know, his mania for never being proven wrong about anything and uh, blaming everyone else except the FBI for any missteps. So uh, ego. <laughs> yes, enormous. I mean, it's it's hard to explain to you know people who've come of age since then because you usually don't have an agency of the U.S. government dominated by a personality cult. But that's what that's the case that was true at the FBI, and um, that 
led directly to the machinations of Mark Felt. Now, I've been wanting to ask this for years. What was Mark's, what was his motivating factor to, to do what he did? Well, he wanted to be the FBI director. As far as he was concerned, it was a once-in-a-generation opportunity. That job, Hoover had held the job for 49 years. It didn't mm -hmm. look like uh, there was going to be another opportunity. So it was all or nothing. So, And he had maneuvered himself into being the heir apparent. But unbeknownst to him, or or he didn't, sufficiently weigh the fact that Nixon had gotten got persuaded that the FBI needed a breath of fresh air, an outsider. So he wasn't going to appoint the designated heir apparent when Hoover suddenly died of a heart attack. Instead, he appointed someone, uh, an assistant attorney general named Pat Gray, and this was going to be the first time that the FBI director was going to have to be confirmed by the Senate. And Nixon didn't want a big confirmation fight in 72 because it was an election year and he didn't want oh, yeah. all the business of Nick, uh, Hoover's misdeeds, you know, dra dragged up in an election year. So he made Pat Gray an interim appointee and he told Gray, you know, if you do a creditable job, when the time comes after the election, I might appoint you to the permanent directorship. Uh, and he didn't know really what he was doing by that because he, because felt realized or decided that if he leaked adverse information about Gray's performance to the press, uh, that he might be able to turn Nixon against Gray. And then the break-in happened, and felt and instantly realized that it was very politically sensitive. Any details about it about the FBI's investigation that appeared in the press would instantly, you know, antagonize Nixon and the whole White House. So that's what he did with Bob Woodward. And also another reporter who doesn't get enough credit, a Time Magazine reporter named Sandy Smith. So that was what Felt was about. He was, Watergate was not a campaign issue. It was not threatening Nixon's election. You know, most people, hard to believe, didn't care about it one whit except, you know, some Democrats. Nixon was going to head it for a landslide victory. So Felt could leak details and turn Nixon against Gray. And that's what he was all about. Little did he know that it was going to turn out to what it turned out to be. But yeah. that was basically his motive, was to impugn his boss. And all the while he was telling Pat Gray, Boy, you're a breath of fresh air. You're the best thing that happened to Bureau in, you know, 20 years. He was a slimy, lying son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you just ruined it for me because here, here I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm like, well, man, it almost sounds like this guy cared more about integrity than he did his own ego, you know, given what you just said that he was trying to do. But, you know, what we know about Deep Throat and Mark Felt is, you know, he was meeting in secret and parking garages and he was giving information, you know, sensitive information, and it's almost like he was trying to do the right thing. 
Well, a lot of that is 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 hype. One thing I realized uh, when I did that book is that all the president's men really has to be seen as uh, you know part of the new journalism. I don't know if you're old enough to remember that, but in the late '60s and early '70s, there was a sudden enthusiasm for something that was called the new journalism, in which the journalist made himself part of the story and introduced novelistic elements into the story and, you know, wrote about it from a, you know, personal vantage point. And all the President's Men is written in the first person, uh, in the third person, you know. They're writing about the event as if they're, you know, to, they call themselves Woodward and Bernstein, but of course, you know, they're uh, participants. So, uh, it's really over-dramatized. People who worked at the Post at the same time, you know, considered it a, a false picture in many, many ways of what happened. It was, you know, a simple, beautiful morality tale. And Deep Throat, you know, no one anticipated he would assume the significance that he did. I mean... Felt was asked if he wanted to be identified, and he said, "Are you kidding?" You know, and reamed Woodward out and said, "You know, no." And in fact, one of the ironies of the whole deep throat thing is that Woodward and Bernstein get credit, you know, for being these intrepid reporters. You'd have to pull their fingernails out before they would reveal their sources. Well, they betrayed Felt because. You know, the deal with him was he was not to be uh, mentioned by name, for sure. He was not to be identified as a source in any stories. He was not to be quoted, and even his existence wasn't supposed to be uh, acknowledged. And they more or less did that in their newspaper stories, but when it came to time to write the book, they violated, you know, virtually every one of those stipulations, except they didn't use Felt's name or where he worked. Otherwise, they breached, you know, they have these long passages oh, yeah. quoting him mm -hmm. supposedly verbatim. That was not, so they violated for the book the agreement they had two years earlier made to him, you know, on a, swearing on a stack of Bibles. So they were very expedient. Um, you know, their explanation was, well, we couldn't write the book without, you know, acknowledging his existence. It wouldn't have been the truth. Well... Uh, that was not what Felton thought he was in yeah. for. Well, one more point, and then I promise I'm going to shut up and let Al take it for just a moment. <laughs> uh, from from what I'm understanding, though, Mark Felt kind of had, you know, ideas that maybe he could replace, you know, Hoover. Right. So why not just come out with the information, uh, come out and, and do it publicly, because this is stuff that America needed to know was really going on behind the scenes. You know, it's it, it, it's not all rainbows and unicorns. Well, and, and if anything happens to me, then you'll know who did it. <laughs> Look, the only president who was going to appoint Mark Felt was Richard Nixon. George McGovern, the Democratic candidate, had already criticized Hoover. In fact, one of the, the things that it helped make his name was in 70, 71, when it was still very rare for a politician to dare utter the name Hoover 
in a critical way. He had gone on record criticizing Hoover's FBI. And he wasn't going to appoint an insider if he became president. You know, if anything, he would have cleaned the place out. So Felt was banking on Richard Nixon being reelected. He didn't want to do anything, and he didn't think he was doing anything to harm that. And as far as he was concerned, the illegality of Watergate, he wasn't concerned about that in the slightest. I mean, this is a guy who authorized FBI black bag jobs all the time. You know, he thought that was a proper investigative technique. In fact, he was, you know, later uh, uh, during the Carter administration, he was tried for just exactly that and found guilty. And then Reagan pardoned him. So this isn't someone who is concerned about the illegality of the break-in or anything of that sort. He was just using it to destroy his perceived rivals, and one of them, the most nearest one, was Pat Gray. And Gray had no idea what was going on. I mean, he was naive in a way. I'm sorry, go ahead, Al. Well, if you had, um, I was going to say, what exactly do you think the biggest misperception the public has about Watergate is? Well, it's it's uh, probably the role of journalism. I mean, I think, and of the Post in particular. I mean, the the press did play an important role. But if you really look at those first six months, I'm talking about from June to January 73, when the original burglars were tried, it was the legal process that was really the hero, and that's why one is so concerned about what's happening today, because, um, you know, there was great concern about the integrity of the Justice Department at that time, and there was a lot of reason to be. Kleindienst knew that something untoward happened and he didn't tell his the prosecutors lower down from him, but he also didn't interfere with them. He just didn't tell them the truth. He's, you know, lying by omission. Kleindienst being the, the Attorney General. So there was a great deal to be concerned about, but in the end, the legal system, you know, worked slowly, but, you know, it forced McCord to confess that perjury had occurred at the trial. Eventually it brought John Dean into the prosecutor's office and he confessed all, you know, even before he went before the Senate Watergate Committee. So that's why the it was really the integrity of the justice system, you know, despite some creakiness in it that ultimately triumphed. And that was more important than, you know, stories in the press. Now, that that helped the stories in the Washington Post and other newspapers, the L.A. Times in particular, helped inoculate the prosecutors from, you know, in, people interfering with what, what they were doing. But, you know, there's an old saying, the wheels of justice grind slowly, but they grind extremely fine. And that is, I guess, what I'd say is the biggest misconception, you know, that you know, if you look at what Woodward and Bernstein were reporting, in every case they're only reporting what the FBI already knew. So it's not like they were, you know, breaking a story and the government uh, comes in and says, oh, look at this corruption. I mean, all the information they had that they got from Felt and other sources, 
were things that the prosecutors and the uh, uh, already knew. So uh, it no, it made them look like they broke the story because they were reporting in public what the prosecutors knew in private. It's just like with Mueller now. Right. I mean, do, do you think that the press knows as much as he does? I don't think so. Or at least no. I hope not. No, I hope not even not. close. I don't right. know. <laughs> but, but, he's been, he's been very, uh, I think, you know, they say he's been practically leak-proof, which is unheard of in Washington. Yeah. Well, that's sort of, in a way, that's the way it should, should be done anyway. It should be. It should yeah. be done. I mean, what Felt did, uh, you know, because of his motive, was entirely inappropriate. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, um, back then, but people had a, um, a better trust in the press than they do now. Right. So I don't know how we're going to get back to that. Because how do you unring that bell? There's, and then with the major groups out there like Alex Jones and Roger Stone and do, doing all their stick. Right, right. How do people particularly know uh, where to go? And, and even then, how, you can't really tell them. They have to actually want to believe in someone. Right. It's very difficult. It's very. Di I mean, I, I I sympathize, and I'm you know I live there in Washington. I know reporters. I have read those papers for years now, and um, it's very difficult. You you have to look at the byline and know the reputation of the reporter. Um, yeah, yeah. You have to kind of follow up. Yeah. You have to be an educated consumer. I mean, there's a, a lot of reporters, you know, who I'm frankly surprised write for the New York Times because, you know, I know their biases and... Um, you know, frankly, surprised that well, they write for them, and the same is, can be true at the Post. You know, being at those two newspapers isn't a guarantee of objectivity and integrity. Yeah. Well, uh, let's let's be intellectually honest here, though. I mean, everybody, you know, and I'm I'm not trying to be dirty here, but everybody wants to be deep throat. Everybody wants to have the information, and I want to give it out. I want to be that person. Well, uh, I mean, deep throat, there are some people who leak for that, you know, personal advancement. There are other people who leak for principle. There are other people who leak because, you know, they're sleeping with the reporter. That's just happened. Uh, there are other people who leak to just show how important they are. I mean, there's a whole variety of uh, reasons and it's important as a reporter to realize why you're being given the information. And I'm not saying that, you know, the reason has to be pure and white as snow to use information, but it's, you don't want to be used and you're susceptible to being used if you don't understand why you've been favored with this information. Right. You know, and some people just work very hard. They're, and they cultivate sources, and then when the story comes, you know, their, their weeks and months spent cultivating the source pay off. So, but, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of seeminess in the reporter-source relationship. Yeah. But, but as, as personalities who, who do a radio show, Al and I and, and Julie, you know, we also, we work in the paranormal circles as well. We do, a, yeah. you know, a, a paranormal segment. 
And, for example, you know, we always have experts that come on. Well, I'm air-quoting experts that, well, I've got information on Area 51. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, you know, I've got this information and that information, and I want to put this information out there so the public knows. And, you know, it, it is very reminiscent of what Deep Throat did in that parking garage. How do we sort out what's truth and what's BS? <laughs> well, it's, you know, hard, and it's gotten a lot harder. Uh, it used to be that, you know, when the media was much more, I don't want to use the word controlled, but it was, you know, much harder to get out there when the major networks dominated and the major newspapers dominated. You know, everything was mediated, and you sort of had to pass hurdles to get your information out there. Now it's like the wild, wild west, and anybody can put up a website, and anybody can say anything they want, and, um, you know, a lot of credulous people out there, and they repeat it, and then you don't know where it originally came from, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a devilish problem, and I don't have a, an easy answer to it. Yeah. Well, when we... um. When, another thing I was thinking and, and saw you write about was Oswald's first shot, NIST. Yeah. Um, what, what can you tell us about that? Like, what's what's your point on that? Well, the, the that point is related to the Zapruder film. Uh, you know, what happened is after Oswald was murdered, two days after the assassination, um, the overwhelming vantage point for the assassination shifted from his sniper's perch on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository to the Zapruder film. And when that shift took place, you know, because the Zapruder film is the only record of the shooting, and, you know, it, could, it, it didn't have to be made, in which case we would have just had to stick with restaging the assassination from Oswald's point of view. But instead, the presumption was made that Zapruder had recorded the assassination in full. Well, if you look at the Zapruder film, it's 26 seconds in duration. Wow. The first seven seconds are just of these motorcycle, lead motorcycles driving by. And Zapruder stops his camera after about seven seconds of running it. Because he doesn't, you know, in those days he had a wind-up camera, he didn't know exactly how much film he had left, and he didn't want to record, you know, Dallas motorcycle policemen. So he waited until he saw the president. And as soon as he was sure that he was seeing the president, that's when he started his camera, and that's frame 133, and then it rolls, you know, until the end. Well, if you actually think about it for a while, you realize that the car, the limousine, was already about 70 feet down into Dealey Plaza by that time. And Oswald, who was a trained Marine, uh, you know, trained to fire at the upper body mass, and we've all seen those silhouettes, you know, a head and an upper body torso. That's mm -hmm. what he's trained to fire at. 
And that silhouette came into his line of sight about, I forget the exact figure, it's 1.7 seconds, I think, or maybe even two, before Zapruder restarted his camera. And I could go, you know, digress and go into a long explanation of how I came to realize this, but the point is, I suddenly realized that Oswald had a, you know, his target in sight before Zapruder started his camera, and I realized that there was a possibility of a fundamental misunderstanding in which Zapruder's perspective was equated with Oswald's, when in fact there are two different perspectives. And through that I came to the realization that in all likelihood, and the best explanation of what happened is that Oswald fired before Zapruder restarted his camera. And so you're never going to find the first shot which people were looking at in the, in the Zapruder film because it already happened. And actually, the Zapruder film only makes sense when you realize it's the second and third shots. And this whole business of did Oswald have enough time you know, how difficult was it, et cetera, et cetera, is all put to rest when you realize. And in fact, if you look at Zapruder's own testimony before the Warren Commission, he says, I heard two shots. Mm -hmm. They say they were three, and I'm not going to say there aren't three, but I heard and saw two shots. And in fact, that's what he filmed. And that's all he filmed. So all this, you know, six seconds in Dallas, and you know, how could someone operate a rifle that quickly? That's all, it all melts away when you realize that the film is a time clock of the assassination, yes, but it's a time clock of one that had already started. And therefore, yeah. uh, it's, you know, the film is both extremely informative, but it's also, it was also extremely deceptive because it became. You know, the, the, it became the vision of the assassination. You couldn't imagine the assassination without running the film in your head. And in fact, the film was only partial. Uh, let me say this. You're about the fourth, perhaps the fifth, person that I have talked about the JFK assassination with. And you're the first person that has brought this out. The Zapruder film which we have based everything on. If you look at the first frames, JFK is leaning forward. Mm -hmm. the, fir the first frames from when he restarted the camera. Yes. Yeah, okay. Now, I, I am going to guess, and tell me if I'm wrong, please, that could be from the first shot, because you, you brought this up, we, as military men, are taught to shoot center mass. And center mass is generally a chest shot. Right. And that first shot could have hit him in the chest. Everybody talks about the head shots. Yeah. But was there a shot in the chest? There was one that entered his upper back, but that only becomes evident around frame 223, which is, you know, 110 frames after the Zapruder film restarts. I mean, he isn't in distress, obviously, you know, to the 
naked eye until frame 222 or 223 when he reaches for his throat. And that's the bullet that entered his upper back and exits his throat. Is it a possibility, though, that that was the second shot? Well, that was the second was, shot. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the I first shot to hit him, see, there's a big, one of the big problems is nomenclature here. The first shot to hit him is the second shot. The first shot, you know, doesn't hit him, doesn't hit anybody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's another issue. Why did it miss? But for the moment, let's just put this aside. The second shot is the one that hits him in the upper back, exits his throat, and hits Conley. And then the third shot is the one that hits him in the head. Yeah, and those just... are the two shots that Zapruder says he noticed. And then he filmed. Yeah, just be patient with me. I'm, I'm taking sure. notes. I'm taking notes as as we're writing. Seriously, I'm taking notes. So. Yeah, that's our. Now, with with all of the conspiracy that's arisen from the whole JFK, I I sort of put that as the beginning of of what we have in today's media and and world. Well, you're very perceptive. I agree. I mean, uh, it's always you know, and we have these pure periodic eruptions of interest in the JFK case because it was, you know, it was never truly put to rest. It took me a long time to to come to this analytical point of view, but, you know, the Warren Commission had five questions to answer, and two of them were already answered before they even started work, you know, when, I mean, what happened? assassination of the president when did it happen everybody knew that but the other question is who how and why now how is going to determine who right yeah. I mean once you determine how exactly he was killed that's going to point the finger at who and who is going to tell you why well since one of the who's at least was killed, then right away you're left to speculate. I mean, you know, your analysis of Oswald's motives is as good as mine or as good as anybody else's. He left no note. He didn't explain himself to his brother or his wife. So, you know, it's really a matter of interpreting his past and coming to your own conclusion about that. Um so that goes to motive. You know, who, well, did he have any, even if he physically did the killing in Dealey Plaza, did he have any Confederates outside who were assisting him or put him up to it or going to help him get away? So, you know, again, his murder leaves that to, you know, uh, uh, more vague than we possibly might want it. So that leaves how. You know, how was the president murdered in Dealey Plaza? And that was a question, though, that the Warren Commission could have and should have answered in a clear, compelling, concise way. And it's precisely because of this problem with the Zapruder film, believing that all three shots fired were on the film in some way, that they, if you read the pages of the Warren Report, you know, I wouldn't say it's inaccurate, but it's the most convoluted, confusing, 
explanation because they go through each of the possibilities. The first shot fired was the one that missed. The second shot fired was the one that missed, and the th or the third shot fired was the one that missed. Initially, they thought it made the most sense that the third shot fired was the one that missed because the car would be furthest away, and of course, you'd be most likely to miss. But most, almost everybody in Dealey Plaza said the shot to the head was the last shot. So mm. that didn't work. Conversely, you know, if he hit him twice at those distances, you know, how could he miss him when he was closest? Right. That didn't seem to make sense either, superficially. Well, Although it's a more difficult shot than you might think. So they well, kind of they kind of said, you know, it was a second shot that missed. Well, one, once you do that, you're in this three, you know, three shots in six seconds and of a moving target. And it becomes exceedingly difficult to do that. Not impossible, but difficult. And it just opened a can of worms at the Warren Commission uh, never, you know, successfully put it into. And, you know, once you start questioning the how, well, the who and the why are, you know, as I said, they're, they're problematic to begin with. But if you can't, if you, if you haven't even answered how, and there's only one way it happened. It doesn't happen a different way every time you see the president drive, drive through Dealey Plaza. It happened one way. Well, which was that one way? Yeah. And they didn't. They they couldn't. They didn't come up with that because, you know, basically they ran out of time. They had a lot to do. Uh, they came up with a, you know, one shot hit both men, which was true, which was a, de a departure from what the FBI had found. So, they thought they had, you know, done a good job. But in fact, it it was a soft underbelly. And, and and plus there's all these wild cards that were thrown in there. The type of rifle, you, you couldn't reload it within this amount of time. And, there, you know, the, the grassy knoll, and, and I mean, there was just so much to it. Right. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of issues that get involved. You know, it's a... Um Bolt action rifle. You, it's not an automatic rifle. You pull the trigger and you can squeeze off three shots in a blink of an eye. So there's a lot of factors that go to, go into it. But you know, I've worked on it for a long time, and basically, I came down to the uh, to what I think is the rock bottom truth: is that how was the question that they should have answered, and they shouldn't have rested until they had the answer. There was an answer. It was elusive. Uh, they didn't get it. Um, you can't say their report is wrong because they kind of, if you really read it, it was written by lawyers, and you practically have to be a lawyer to read it, but it's, you can't exactly <laughs> say the language is wrong, but it's not as clear as it should have been, and, uh, you know, critics, some of whom were, not well-intentioned, exploit, have exploited that, and you know, to the commission's detriment. But y you can't blame the critics; it's the commission's fault. Yeah, but but now that 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 has become the way of of analyzing. So now uh, society seems to be suspicious of everything that happens. So every time there's a mass shooting, a school shooting, or any sort of thing that goes on, all of a sudden it's a false flag. It's a government uh -oh. thing. And and um, 
Right, and and the sickest example of that would be, you know, the people accused that elementary school shooting in Connecticut of being a false flag, uh, uh, you know, Alex Jones. He's being sued for that right now. I mean, that shows you the disgusting level to which we've sunk, that someone, you know, would feel free to make that allegation, which is, you know, to the parents of the children who died there is, is... is just beyond belief. Well, why why can they do that? Like the big thing is that's something that wouldn't have happened back during the Kennedy shooting or during Watergate. It's not something right. that would have been accepted. So why is it that it's acceptable now? Why is it that we have these media outlets, so they call themselves, doing that kind of reporting because people believe it. People follow yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's tragic and it's um, it's very corrosive. Um, I mean, people have lost faith in institutions, and this is what happens when that occurs. Uh, hmm. You know, like I say, the Warren Commission wasn't perfect, but uh, it isn't like they did this on purpose. It was a perceptive perceptual, you know, hurdle that they didn't realize that, uh, I mean, it was there if they had, you know, thought outside the box a little. So it wasn't anything that they did, uh, you know, intentionally to do, you know, as far as they were concerned, if they could have come up with a clear explanation, they would have. They did the best they could and they, and people, you know, have to understand that because, um, well, Otherwise, we're, we're you know we're headed in the. I mean, things are bad now. Well, I mean, I I could probably answer that as an average Joe. Um, mm-hmm. I have a lot of faith in the JFK investigation. I, I really do. But over the years, we have just gotten used to the government giving us a line of bull, and over the years, we've simply lost faith in what the government tells us and if somebody comes along with an explanation that seems to make more sense we're willing to accept that yeah well i mean the government isn't perfect and uh, i think i have stone says you know governments lie all the time so it is a problem but uh, when it's something as fundamental as you know who killed the president you know, and Oliver Stone said, you know, or Jim Garrison, quoted by Oliver Stone, said, you know, if, if our government isn't telling us the truth about who killed our president, then, you know, they'll lie about anything and uh, you know, have a coup d'etat. I mean, it's just like people say that the deep state is after Trump now. Um, you know, the government is complicated. It has in its bureaucracies uh, institutional instincts which may be at odds with the president but to believe that the you know agents in the bowels of the government would go about killing the president well that's you know yeah. Hollywood yeah yeah it gets a bit bit dramatic but yeah and it's and it's nothing new I, I here recently I watched a documentary about the killing of Abraham Lincoln on Fox News you know, just 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 an interest, and I mean, my goodness, they already had a story in place. 
you know, not the government side, but, uh, you know, Booth, they already had a story in place that, that would have made sense. Well, that was a conspiracy, obviously. The question is whether it was a conspiracy that the Confederacy had put up or whether Booth was acting independently, and, and I'm not sure we'll ever know. Yes. But there's no I mean, they were, you know, killing several officials that night, or tried to, so obviously it was a conspiracy. Mm. Well, Max, this has been uh, very, very interesting. You're great guest to have on, and uh, we'll have your books on our website as well. Our guest has been uh, Max Holland. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. 